Now, there's a certain reality associated with the fact that it's been over 50 years. And the reality is that before many of you, including much of the heritage staff present with us today, before many of you were born, and while the rest, with a few exceptions, were just children, men and women who were a part of this congregation, under serious conviction that there was a need for such an institution, began praying for, began planning for, began giving to, began working to develop, and sacrificing to make Heritage Christian School a reality. Now, it's easy to make the mistake that when we inherit something, the mistake that allows us to forget that it's a legacy that others built with their blood and with their sweat and with their tears. And in this case, with their prayers and their sacrifices. Heritage is here today to educate, uh, to serve as a mission for the gospel, as a place to teach sound biblical doctrine, and to be an aid to families, to employ and give opportunities of service, because an earlier generation had foresight, faith, and a willingness to make sacrifices for a generation yet to come. Heritage was not always just there. It didn't just spring into existence out of that hillside. And the congregation stumbled on it. Look, oh, here's a school. Wasn't like that. And while a few of the founding generation remain, for most here today, it's a gift placed in your hands by God through the efforts of those He raised up and equipped to serve Him in this endeavor. It's yours today because God used those who came before you to bring it forward. And they've now passed it on to you and me, passed it on to us as a congregation, passed it on to you as staff members, and to those who are families and students involved in the school. They've passed it on to us. In our scripture reading a moment ago, we came across many sound admonitions. And some of them are quite apropos to the occasion today. But I want to draw your attention under my first point here to Proverbs 22 and verse 28. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Now this isn't the only place in scripture where this warning is given. And that indicates something to us. It indicates two important things, at least to us. First, that it must have been a real temptation. 
and a real problem to want to move landmarks, to want to change them. If it wasn't a problem, if it wasn't a temptation, it would have needed repeating. And secondly, it's an indication that this is something that's important to the Lord. It is an important part of God's will. And consequently, it's to be taken carefully and thoughtfully into mind by those who are his people. Generally speaking, the more often something is repeated in the word of God, the more attention ought to be given to it by those who love his word. Now, these landmarks were the indicators by which boundaries were set regarding lands and inheritances and and estates. They were set by ancestors upon the agreement of those involved. And in Israel, there was a curse invoked upon those who took it upon themselves to redefine or to move those markers or those boundaries. In the book of Job, this action of moving a landmark was considered thievery and worthy of the same punishment as someone who stole your sheep or your cattle, or any livestock that belong to you. And we read in the book of Hosea, the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 5 and verse 10, this. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. These leaders, these priests in Israel, these princes in Israel, or in Judah, they've moved those ancient landmarks. They've moved them in regards to spiritual things. They've moved them in regards to civil things. And the Lord says, moving those things has uh, provoked my wrath against them. And I will pour it out like water. Over the ages, this command not to move the ancient landmarks has been applied to laws and customs in a political sense or a civil sense and in a theological sense, to biblical doctrine. When we look back over the academic history of the last 200 years or so, and we could even go back further than that, but just doing that, in every discipline, from theology to the various scholastic sciences, there's been both a subtle, and I think we can say a more overt effort, to move the ancient landmarks. And I'm not talking about those changes that are dictated by obvious truth. Um, There was a time when scientists seriously warned that if one exceeded a speed limit of 60 miles an hour, everything would disintegrate, including you. And some of you probably exceeded that 60 mile an hour speed limit getting here today, and you're here. So we know that that wasn't true. It was obviously incorrect, and we know better. We're not talking about moving our understanding of what's true and right and clear. It's not those things that I'm referring to. But those efforts to secretly or subtly, yet plausibly, by clandestine efforts and fraud, to displace truth with error to call good evil 
and evil good, to move or even to remove the boundaries of obvious truth or to change the very intent and purpose of of things that were in good uh, faith handed down to following generations. There's been a deliberate effort to move disciplines and institutions from their foundations in truth, to make adjustments that would shift them away from their original intent and purpose. Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and a host of other uh, academic institutions would not be recognizable to or approved by their founders today because the foundations on which they were raised, the boundaries that they sought to fill, have been shifted by those who have inherited what they struggled to establish. They wouldn't recognize it, and they wouldn't approve it. It's so far from what their intention was. It's moved so far from what they wanted to see happen through what they were developing. All those things that we mentioned a moment ago represent what those founders of heritage intended should be handed down to this generation. They intended that it should be preserved as a place in which children in the South Sound area will be taught the basic fundamentals of the most important academic disciplines. Now, Does that change somewhat? It does, but within the context of those academic disciplines, not outside of them. The way we teach, some of the things we teach may change, but all within that discipline. They were looking for a place where they would be exposed to the arts in a God-honoring way, where they would be taught the values of good sportsmanship and, and clean competition, a place where they will be encouraged in their love for their family members and and where they'll, in addition to that, be instilled with the proper respect for veterans and for those who serve our country and our community and for the justice and liberty that is at the very core of our nation. And above all, they were concerned to see a place established where they, these children could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be challenged as Christian children to live for God every day. That's what their intention was. And that's where they set the landmarks. This is what we want done in this place. Charles Bridges, who wrote one of the great commentaries on the book of Proverbs, says this. All sound expositors warn us from this proverb to reverence long-tried and well-established principles and not rashly to innovate upon them. Some scorn the ancient landmarks as relics of bygone days of darkness. Impatient of restraint, they want a wider range of wandering to indulge either their own lustful appetite for novelties or the morbid cravings of others for this unwholesome excitement. 
the right of individual judgment oversteps its legitimate bounds. And in its licentious exercise, every man feels justified to do and think that which is right in his own eyes. And then Bridges adds to that statement this warning from the Apostle Paul, from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate uh, for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, beloved, this warning against wandering is one of those things that can be very easily misconstrued, especially among those who have an agenda. That is, who ultimately design, their ultimate design is to move the landmarks. That's what they want to do. They claim that such a position where the ancient landmarks are remained and recognized and respected is stagnant. And they say it condemns innovation and even restrains proper reformation. Well, that's not what we're talking about. And while such claims can be legitimate in certain respects, they can also be disingenuous and nefarious. They exaggerate the claims only to make room for their willful departure. Rather than arguing the legitimacy of their innovation or departure from the recognized practice of the past, they accuse the one standing by it of being stubborn or shuddering, shudder the thought, being caught up in tradition. And what an awful thing we all know that is. Well, it is wrong to substitute the traditions of men for the word of God and for the commandments of God. But it's also equally wrong to depart from those traditions that are soundly anchored in the word of God. Paul said this to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you have been taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Here's Paul calling on believers to stand firm upon those landmarks, those traditions. So we in the present have a duty to those of the past. They form a cloud of witnesses who, by their faith and their convictions and their actions, handed down something to us to be preserved, not just as an institution, but as a mission. And that brings us to the present. That's the past. This is the present. To address the present, I want to turn our attention to a well-known passage, and I want us to do so while keeping our eye on what we've said so far. The passage is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 through 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, the context here 
refers to the victory won by Christ at the resurrection. And we always want to be very cautious about taking any portion of the word of God out of context. But I believe, beloved, that we have here a, a, a safety in doing and applying these passages to this present discussion. Because all spiritual victories are only possible in Christ, who gives them to his people. And beyond that, the work that goes on at Heritage, though it has its, its practical, we might say even rather sterile academic aspects, hopefully this work is being carried on with the resurrection in view, with the gospel in view, and the result of believing that gospel, the promise of the resurrection and the promise of eternal life. That everything that's done there as, as the day goes on and as the years go on has that in mind in some part. If all we're doing is laboring to equip students to function well in this world, that certainly minimizes the significance of the endeavor. I mean, that's, that's nice. It's good we want to do that, but there are lots of other people with that passion. And that was not the intention of the founders. And it's not our intention that the education at Heritage should be limited to that goal. We're all concerned that the students should know not only how to read and how to add and subtract, but also come to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, preparing them not only for the present, but for eternity. And it's this aspect of the ministry there that lifts it out of the mundane, but which also makes it a target of the enemy and those who serve him. Anyone from the very beginning, who's ever been involved with the work at Heritage is bound to admit that this ministry has survived five decades by the grace and the mercy of God. It has been threatened from within and without since it was first entertained by those in this congregation who were burdened for their children and for future generations. The Ebenezer Stone was intended to be a marker, somewhat like those that we've been talking about here in regards to landmarks. Israel was allured by the idolatry all around them. They were oppressed by their ancient enemy, the Philistines, and reeling under the influence of the one and the hatred of the other, Samuel called for revival and action among the people of God. A group of God's people responded to that call on Samuel's part, and they gathered together, and they confessed their sins, and they acknowledged the danger that they were in as the result of these things. And they sought the Lord and they determined to strike out against the enemy. And the record of those events are recorded for us in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. 
1 Samuel 7, verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. As this school year opened at Heritage, Heritage's Ebenezer Stone was acknowledged once more. Till now, the Lord, the Lord Jehovah, the sovereign, independent God of heaven, has helped us. Till now. We have come this far by his hand, by his grace, by his protection, by his deliverance, by his provision. We've come this far. And now, as this year unfolds, we all, church and school, must stand together and, to be, and be thankful to God with one heart for the victories that have brought us to this hour and be prepared to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. That is, beloved, we must be solidly grounded in those founding principles set forth by those whose prayers and sacrifices and efforts established this work. Determining that With this being the purpose for which it was found in the name of God, we will labor to see that it's preserved, being steadfast. Not being intimidated or wooed or moved away, made to retreat or abandon the work of the Lord that we have inherited from those who preceded us in this great effort. All efforts in the behalf of the Lord need to be trusted in him. And our confidence is that our labor is not in vain when we do it and carry it out in his name. All educators, and, and especially Christian educators, are challenged sometimes by doubts about the value of their efforts. 
And ultimately, this is something that we just have to leave with the Lord. But sometimes the Lord encourages us and he permits us to be strengthened by some encouragement that comes to us unexpectedly. I know a teacher who some years ago now received a very unexpected email. It was from a former student who herself was now the headmaster of a large Christian school. And the teacher knew that she'd been doing well and that she was in demand from other schools in the area. That wasn't what surprised him. What he wasn't prepared for was the point of her letter, which in short was a letter of thanks to God, referencing all that she had learned under that teacher. All that he had taught her, both by example and by deliberate effort. It involved not just the academic aspects of her education, but things intangible and spiritual. And she was expressing in the letter her gratitude to God for using this teacher in such a way in her life. Now, it doesn't always happen. Some of you who are teachers, you've had that experience. Others maybe have never had that experience. Word isn't necessarily passed down to to us in such a direct way. But the evidence, I would say, beloved, is all around you. It's all around you. All around you who have served and are serving at Heritage. All around us as a congregation. There's a host of godly men and women raising families, living for Christ, and serving the Lord in their own homes, at their jobs, and in their churches, that bears witness that your work has not been done and is not being done in vain. An occasional correspondence opened up between that student and the teacher, but it was short-lived. Because not long after that grateful student communicated that to her teacher, she was tragically killed in an auto accident. It was a chilling event in the way that it happened. But it gave great peace to that teacher to know that she was secure in the Lord. Not because of him, but because of the way the Lord had used him in her life. You know, right now, I suspect there's a small group of Heritage alumni with the Lord awaiting the resurrection. Many more of the founders are in that state. But given the age of Heritage, that number's going to grow. Inevitably, it will be a growing one. It may not be a throng of thousands. But then Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There is joy among the angels for one heart that is reached through the ministry that you carry out at Heritage, that is reached through what we support here as a church. And that brings us to the future quickly. We want to be abounding in the work of the Lord 
The idea expressed by Paul in this uh, comment is that we be super abounding in both the quantity and quality of the work that God has given us to do in his name. I talked earlier about not moving the landmarks, but within those parameters, there are things that have to be done. There are opportunities to improve what's going on at the school. And within those parameters, we want to press to see those things accomplished. This superbounding reflects on the future as well as the present. The idea is that what is being done now will not only serve the present need, but also it will produce enough that something remains after the work we've been able to do is finished. This has been passed down to us by a former generation. Now we are passing it down to another generation. And we want to pass it down whole and complete and effectual. Perhaps I should put it this way. What we as a congregation do in regards to heritage and every other aspect of our ministry as a church and what you who are serving at Heritage's staff are doing ought to be done with the same eye that the founders of Heritage had. They were not just thinking of themselves and their children, but they were thinking of the future. They were thinking of their children's children and the needs that they would have and that other Christian families would have, as well as those that were without hope. They were thinking of you, and they were thinking of the the needs of lost generations of the future. It would need a place where they could be educated reasonably and hear in plain terms the gospel of Jesus Christ. Throughout Scripture, you find this theme of one generation serving another, of those alive in any one era having an eye on those who will follow. You saw it in our responsive reading this morning. In Psalm 78, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. It's right there in that testimony. In Psalm 145, verse 4, it says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And Isaiah, chapter 38, verse 19, The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1, You, therefore, my son, referring to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. For various ones of us, our days of interaction and influence with the work at Heritage are numbered. Others of you are in the heart of it, and still others are just getting involved. For all of us, this school, with its mission and with its aim, 
was handed down to us by those who went before us. And we've come in to their inheritance. And while we want to pass it on stronger and better than we found it, that desire needs and ought to be within the parameters set by those who established the school, who labored in the name of the Lord to give it birth. We need, beloved, to bear down in prayer and in action on just how we're going to not just improve the work that goes on there, but preserve the original intent to provide a place where children can be trained as we described earlier. It's an important part of our legacy that we carry this on to the next generation. That simple mission, beloved, has put a target on our backs. That simple mission has put us at the very center of the cultural wars that plague us today. The enemy's not blind to the weakening fabric of our society. He's going to continue to man an assault against institutions like heritage. And it will not be easy maintaining and preserving it for the future. But we have our commission from the Lord. Paul speaks of it in 2 Thessalonians 3.13. As for you, he says, brothers, do not grow weary in well-doing. Don't grow weary in what you are doing, in the good thing you are doing. And we have our encouragement. Little children, John says in 1 John 4.4, You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If we are doing what we're doing for the glory of God and the blessing of his people, then we can look to the Lord to sustain it and to give us the victory. If we don't move the landmarks, but within them, we do all that we can to make this something that glorifies God and blesses his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the past and for those who gave so much to see heritage come into being. We thank you, Lord, for raising them up and putting this burden on their hearts. We thank you this morning, Lord, for those whose labors and efforts are sustaining the work and the way that you've equipped them and provided for the school. And Lord, we pray for the future. May this institution be preserved by your grace within its landmarks. That, Lord, it might provide those things that uh, the founders saw to be so important. Not only for themselves and for their children, but for their children's children. Lord, may we have an eye towards the future. Bless those who are laboring there now, Lord. Use them for your glory. Use them to strengthen the work within the boundaries. And Father, may they pass it on with joy as time rolls on. We thank you again, Lord, for hearing and answering our prayers concerning this great work. And we ask you now to bless us as we fellowship together around the table. May your presence be with us. May your good hand be upon us. And Lord, may we be determined together to preserve this work and to move it forward.
for your glory, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.